an increased risk of heart failure death following an ICD shock. You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino from the University of Chicago Medical Center, and with me today is Dr. Jeannie Poole. Dr. Poole is the professor of medicine and the director of the Arrhythmia Service in the Division of Cardiology, the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington, Seattle, Washington. Today we will discuss a recent paper called Prognostic Importance of Defibrillator Shocks in Patients with Heart Failure. This is a report from the Sudden Cardiac Death and Heart Failure Trial reported recently in the September 4, 2008 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Poole, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'd like to start first by going over the SCUDHEF trial, the Sudden Cardiac Death and Heart Failure trial. What type of patients were studied in that trial? Those were patients who were identified based upon New York Heart Association class for moderate symptoms of heart failure. So they needed to be New York Heart Association class 2 or 3, and also a left ventricular ejection fraction of 35% or less, and no prior history of life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias. So these were symptomatic patients in a large part, but not ICU-type patients. Correct. So they weren't the sickest, which would be considered a class 4 patient. Neither were they the most healthy, if you will, heart failure patient, the class 1 patient. And what type of procedures were done in the trial? How were patients randomized to different therapies? They were randomized in equal proportions to either receive an implantable cardiac defibrillator or to receive amiodarone compared to placebo drugs. So the amiodarone was double-blinded with placebo. So there were three arms to the trial. One-third got amiodarone blinded, one-third got a placebo pill, and the other third received an implanted defibrillator. Now, you mentioned that these were symptomatic heart failure patients. Did it matter what the underlying etiology of the heart failure was, ischemic versus dilated cardiomyopathy? No. Patients could have either etiology of heart failure to be included in this trial. And how many patients were ischemic versus not ischemic, do you recall? Yes. It was about 50% split for ischemic and non-ischemic out of the total of 2,521 patients. I know that this was one of the pivotal ICD trials. What was the overall result of the trial? Which group did better? The group did best who had received the implantable defibrillator. They had a marked and significant reduction in all-cause mortality. On the other hand, the amiodarone antiarrhythmic drug did not benefit patients at all. Their mortality was the same as those who were given the placebo drug. So your paper now is looking at this group a little bit differently. What was the main issue that you wanted to look at in your subpopulation of this trial? We were interested in looking at just the patients who received the implantable defibrillator. And we were asking the question, now that we've implanted this device into people who have never had ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, what does the group of patients look like who then go on to have one of those rhythms treated by the device? Are they a higher-risk group of patients compared to those who never had a rhythm abnormality over the course of the follow-up in this trial, which was very long? It was about four and a half years, the longest clinical ICD trial that's been completed to date. So that was really our question is, now that patients have an abnormal rhythm, 
are they a higher risk subpopulation? Now, in the trial, some patients had what were called an appropriate shock and others had what was called an inappropriate shock. What do you mean by that difference? Well, we want defibrillators to only treat life-threatening arrhythmias, so ventricular arrhythmias. However, sometimes patients can have arrhythmias that are coming from the atrium, such as atrial fibrillation, a common rhythm problem in heart failure patients, and these rhythms can also go fast enough that it triggers therapy from the device. The device is functioning normally, but treats this rhythm abnormality that we would prefer to treat in another way and not with a shock. That's probably the most common cause for what we term an inappropriate shock. There are, however, some other instances where the device, again, can be functioning as it's asked to do so, but it's picking up other signals. So, for instance, if a patient gets too close to some sort of external electrical interference, those signals may be picked up by the device and interpreted as an arrhythmia, and then the device would deliver a shock to the patient. So, in other words, if a patient has atrial fibrillation, that causes the heart rate to go very fast. It goes faster than the limit that the ICD is meant to detect, and that's what delivers the shock? That's correct. So how many of the patients in your population received an appropriate shock? How many an inappropriate shock? 182 of the patients that had the device implanted, which was a total of 811, had an appropriate shock. And a total of 141 patients received an inappropriate shock. Does that seem like a high number of inappropriate shocks? Well, it's too high for all of us who would wish that it was not treating these other rhythms. However, if you compare it to other trials, it's very similar. So in all clinical trials that have been done, the rate of inappropriate shocks varies somewhere between about 14 and 18 percent, depending upon the length of follow-up in the trial. So certainly the longer the follow-up, the more of these events you're going to identify. But I think all of us that are in this business would agree that an inappropriate shock rate that is in that range is certainly much higher than what we would like to see. Now, in looking at the patients who received an appropriate shock, was there some way to determine who was more likely to get an appropriate shock? That was not part of this study. However, we have looked at those kinds of characteristics in patients. We have also seen data that came out of other trials, such as the MADE-IT-2 trial, that have looked at predictors of shocks. And certainly patients who have atrial fibrillation heading into these trials are a group of patients that are more likely to have an inappropriate shock. And it turns out that that's often a predictor for appropriate shocks. Also, you might wonder why that might be. But we know that atrial fibrillation is in a of itself a risk factor of poorer outcome in heart failure patients. Also, patients who are not treated with beta blocker therapy are a group of patients in whom we have identified are more likely to have an appropriate shock as well as an inappropriate shock. So patients who are receiving shocks, I guess in general, can be considered sicker patients, would you say? They can be, and I think that's been a consistent finding also amongst a number of these trials. And again, that wasn't part of this specific study, but patients who have lower ejection fractions and worse heart failure, such as a higher class, New York Heart Association class 3 versus class 2, in some trials are the group that have a higher shock rate. So let's talk about the results of your trial. What is the prognosis of patients after receiving a shock? 
Well, the group are at a significantly higher risk of future death compared to patients who did not receive any shock at all. And that was true for both patients who had an appropriate shock as well as those patients who had an inappropriate shock. How much higher is their risk of death compared to those who didn't get a shock? For patients who had any appropriate shock compared to those who did not over the course of the trial, the risk was five times greater. For patients with an inappropriate shock, it was about two times greater than those who had had no inappropriate shock over the course of the follow-up of the trial. So it's a significant increased risk. So you mentioned there's as much as a five times increased risk of future death if you've received a shock. Is this, again, just a way of identifying a sicker group of patients, or could the shock have led to worsening heart failure and leading to the outcome down the road? The primary reason for the increased risk is likely to be the arrhythmias. We know that patients with heart failure who develop ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation are a higher-risk group. That has been known for a long time. The study that we did gave us the ability to really assess how much greater that risk is. So if we try to say, do the shocks hurt patients, I think the answer would be overwhelmingly a small percentage of patients, if at all, are actually harmed by a shock. Because if patients were harmed, then we wouldn't have multiple clinical trials that have now proven and substantiated that implantable defibrillators save lives because the primary modality for these devices to save patients is shock therapy. Having said that, is there some instance in which a shock itself might be danger? Perhaps in a very rare instance, if somebody has end-stage heart failure, one could imagine that the shock might be harmful to that patient. But overall, the most reasonable approach to thinking about this study and these results is that the rhythms are the marker of increased risk, and the ICD shock is simply the therapy being delivered to that patient. I guess I'm still concerned about the patients who received only an inappropriate shock. In those patients, they didn't have ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, and yet they have a twofold increased risk of death further on in the trial. Is that surprising, or again, is it the atrial fibrillation that you think is the signal here? Well, the numbers are small to really completely sort that out, but at least half of the patients who had an inappropriate therapy, a shock therapy, had it because of atrial fibrillation. So I think it's a reasonable assumption that it's the atrial fibrillation that is the increased marker of subsequent increased mortality. Again, it's hard to know whether or not in an end-stage situation, shocks themselves might be harmful to an individual. Probably it's the atrial fibrillation. Oftentimes, the atrial fibrillation was also occurring around the same time frame as a ventricular arrhythmia. Some of those patients were in the group in our study that actually did not live longer than 24 hours after their therapy was delivered. And if you then look at the risk for patients who had inappropriate shocks that did survive longer than 24 hours, the increased risk is much smaller. So it makes you wonder about that particular group of patients. Were they a particularly high-risk group at the end stage of their heart disease, or were they perhaps even dying from other terminal diseases? And we simply don't have enough clinical information on that group of patients to really sort that out at this time. 
Well, I want to thank Dr. Jeannie Poole, who's the professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at the University of Washington, Seattle. We've been discussing a recent paper about the prognosis of a defibrillator shock in a patient who has heart failure. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening. Hi, this is Dr. Riley Williams, team physician for the New Jersey Nets professional basketball team and the New York Red Bulls professional soccer team, and you are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals.